Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you today? I couldn't be doing better, Tim. It's great to be back after the long weekend, and we are nestled here in our lovely black box in Wormtown. And we've got a great interview today for you. And actually, it's a two-parter, Lance. So what you're getting today and tomorrow is a two-part episode with a friend of ours, a new friend named Bill Thomas, who has been an advocate for the Colonial Parkway murders case for about 30 years now. And his sister, Kathy Thomas, was murdered, and that has really motivated him to stay involved. And so this is going to be a two-part episode that is airing on Wednesday of this week, May 29th, 2019. It's airing on both Missing Maura Murray and Crawl Space, and part two is airing on both channels as well, and that'll be tomorrow, Thursday, May 30th. And we did this because we really understand the significance of this case, and Bill is just such a genuinely good human being he drove up in his mini cooper to our studios and he sat down with us for like three hours he spoke about his sister kathleen's murder she was actually the first of the um series of couples that were killed in what's been nicknamed the lover's lane murder or the parkway murders Uh, she was killed with her girlfriend rebecca ann dowski and that was in 1986 so like you said for over 30 years this man has dedicated his life to finding out if these murders are connected and who actually killed his sister Okay, so we really hope you enjoyed this two-part episode. And if you only subscribe to one of these shows, Crawl Space or Missing Maura Murray, why don't you uh, go subscribe to the other one, too? And, Super uh, easy to do. It really is. And while you're at it, why don't you uh, just give us a uh, five-star review out of the kindness of your own heart? You're there anyway. All you got to do is just slide that cursor over to the right and click that last star. And if you want to get more involved, we do have a Patreon page. We're at patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast, where we're releasing weekly true crime news segments, and we'll talk about the episodes that we release and some behind-the-scenes stories. It's really a must-listen if you're a big fan of these shows, Lance. And we actually got a couple of messages from the last Patreon video that we shot. One of my favorites was just somebody saying, you know you all are crazy, right? <laughs> well, she uh, she's right. And we do know. And Tim, Tim. Yes, yes, what? In just over a week, we will be in New Orleans. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. CrimeCon 2019. Use code CRAWLSPACE19 if you are buying your tickets. I know it's late in the game, but if you're buying tickets still, and there are some of you out there who are doing this last-minute thing, same ones that are last-minute holiday shoppers, I'm looking at you. Use code CRAWLSPACE19 at CrimeCon.com, and you will save 10% on your registration. And Tim, tell us a little bit about our Stitcher Premium. We got some great stuff on Stitcher Premium, Lance. CrawlSpace's entire archive is available on Stitcher Premium. Check it out at StitcherPremium.com. And the early episodes of Missing Maura Murray, in addition to our creator's commentary that gets continually added to every month. So there's about to be 50 episodes of our creator's commentary for Missing Maura Murray available only on Stitcher Premium. So check it out. Use code MMM at StitcherPremium.com, and you'll get a free month. And this creator commentary is really catching on. We've been getting a lot of messages about that as well. People saying that they're finding it really interesting. They're finding it really amusing, too, because it gives us a chance to uh, let loose a little bit, maybe give each other a little bit of grief. But we also go back and we correct some errors or we make some clarifications, any developments that have happened in the current day in relation to Morris' case. So it's informative and entertaining. It's really fun. All right. So check it out. And thank you very much for listening. Make sure to come back for part two tomorrow. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Crawl Space Studios, Bill Thomas. How are you today, Bill? I'm great. I'm excited to be in the commodious Crawl Space Studios. Quite luxurious. What are you doing I, pulling I, out words like this? I already have to Google a word you use. Commodious. <laughs> you know what? He saw it. He, I think he saw it on my desktop when the words come up. It's my screensaver. Oh, he must special, have. And I saw him jot it down. Words. Special words that I always try to. Word of the day. I try to pigeonhole. I try to stiff arm into this conversation. <laughs> yeah. You just did. I the, just did. I, um, I, the hospitality um, is really stellar. I mean, thanks. I thought the 
the flavored coffees and the and and the omelets made to order were outstanding. We have a lot of people who come in and they're very impressed because they have one image, one perception of the Crawl Space Studios, and once they see how palatious it is with the ivory ceilings and the pillars and commodious and commodious and the uh, the doorman, the doorman was uh, very nice to you. You guys exchanged numbers and probably grabbed some drinks later. Absolutely, <laughs> what, Worcester's a friendly town. It yeah, is. it's the town of friendly worms. <laughs> so, uh, so thank you for yeah. joining us here in the reality of the situation, which is a uh, about a ten by twelve curtained off, equally commodious. It's comfortable, it's and, comfortable. It and there's a blue table. Yeah. I will say, I will say that Bill did say. So, are we going to fold ourselves into this area now? <laughs> I did. I did say that. That is true. You know, actually, though, so everybody gets a visual picture here. We could even fit a fourth person if we wanted to. That's true. It's kind of like a smart car. Like from outside, you yeah. don't think that there's room inside. Yeah. No. Yeah. 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 I have a Mini Cooper, and ah, you could same fit thing. four people in yeah, there. Yeah, same thing. I own a Mini Cooper. There you go. And you I both have, have long-haired dachshunds. Do you? Yeah, we didn't oh. talk about that. Oh. We gotta, I have to, you know. <laughs> You're a doxy dad. T- tell you all about <laughs> Oliver. <laughs> I, oh, wow. Oliver, wow. what a great name. So, But the reason that you're here, Bill, is to talk about... You mean the tour wasn't in? <laughs> well, we'll have you anytime. Please come back. But the uh, Colonial Parkway murders you've worked on for 32 years? Yeah, I think so. 32 and, years. And I'm very sorry to say and sorry to you that you lost your sister. Yes, thank you. So... Take us through, uh, well, I guess, let, let's talk about you first, a little bit of your background. Sure. Where, what, what is your background? Well, um, my family's originally from Massachusetts. The Navy connection becomes quite important. Um, my father was a, was a naval officer, so we lived all over the country when we were kids. So four kids in my family, um, uh, Irish Catholic uh, family, um, Kennedy Democrats is the way we used to be described. Uh, from Boston, and I'm I'm I know you guys know the type, um, and um, uh, grew up all over the country. We moved every two years when I, when we were kids, and my father Joseph Thomas and my older brother Richard and my younger sister Kathy, who we'll talk about in a second, are the first father son daughter graduates of the United States Naval Academy, and so two of the four kids in the family went to the Naval Academy. The my oldest brother Richard and our uh, only sister and youngest, Kathy. Uh, so Richard and Kathy went to the Naval Academy, and then the two kids in the middle, uh, that's me, I'm the number two kid, Bill, and my younger brother, Jack, we sort of went down the the music and, and theater route. So I worked in the music business for a number of years. Started out, you know, doing an internship at WAF here in Worcester. Nice. And, uh, you know, managed rock and roll bands and ended up with a decade in the consumer electronics industry, RCA, BASF, Panasonic, and then uh, transitioned back into the music business. So I was with ASCAP, the songwriters organization, for 14 years in New York and then spent another decade. Now I'm starting to get an idea. Gee, this guy's old. Spent a decade in Los Angeles um, working for uh, AFTRA, the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, which merged with the Screen Actors Guild to form SAG-AFTRA, which is a mouthful, um, for six and a half years, and then worked for the American Federation of Musicians and the Art Directors Guild. So uh, I spent about 16 years in New York, 12 years in, uh, in Los Angeles, and then just recently moved back to the East Coast, uh, convinced my girlfriend to give up her burgeoning art career to start all over again. <laughs> Um, and we moved back uh, just after Christmas, right in the middle of that uh, polar vortex. Oh yeah, 2015. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, no, no. This is the oh, this, the this recent go round. This year. Oh. Yeah, just a couple of months ago. Okay. Wow. So now I'm writing and um, working on the Colonial Parkway murders and working on a television series on All the right. case and doing other worthwhile things, I hope. That's right. Oxygen just announced uh, that they're doing a show on the case. Correct. We've well, that's great. working on that actually for a couple of years, and we're thrilled. Oxygen just gave us a green light, as they say, to do a limited television series, which will probably be out 
uh, about a year from now, I think, Great. on the Colonial Parkway case. And you're working with some old friends, Texas Crew Productions and yeah. uh, XG Productions. Of course, uh, Texas Crew Productions did the disappearance of Maura Murray show for Oxygen that we were both on. And uh, so that's kind of cool, kind of worlds colliding there. And then XG, we've had uh, a lot of those people on we did the these trifecta. shows. We, d- we, we did. We had uh, Jim Clemente, Bobby Chacon, and Francie Hakes on our airwaves. Oh, they're all great people. Yeah. And then on our TV series, it's going to be Jim Clemente, Maureen O'Connell, um, and Bobby Chacon are going to be the three former FBI agents that help us hopefully figure out what happened with the Colonial Parkway murders. Great. Okay, so the Colonial Parkway murders is a subject of, the, of our conversation here. Can you tell us what they were, when they happened, and what is your, what is your connection, your unfortunate sure. connection? Well, I'm the brother of the first um, murder victim, Um, The Colonial Parkway murders, what you have are a series of double homicides that took place in and around Lover's Lanes near Williamsburg, Virginia from 1986 to 1989. So we often say four years. It's actually three years when you look at the calendar. Um, The first murder uh, is my younger sister, Kathy Thomas, and her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, who was a senior at William & Mary. And they were killed in October 1986. And then what follows in sequence, they think, are are three other double homicides. So you start with a lesbian couple, Kathy and Becky, and then you have three straight couples that were killed. Uh, David Nobling and uh, Robin Edwards were killed almost a year, very, you know, pretty close to exactly a year later um, off the Colonial Parkway. This becomes important. I'll explain in a minute. Um, and then their double homicide was followed by the disappearance and presumed murder. They've been missing for over 30 years now of um, Keith Call. His full name is Richard Keith Call, but he goes by Keith. And uh, Cassandra Haley, who goes by Sandy typically, um, they disappeared in April 1988. And then the last of the four double homicides takes place uh, uh, off the Colonial Parkway, and we'll get into more detail in a second. Um, Daniel Lauer and Anna Maria Phelps um, disappeared and uh, along I-64, which is Interstate 64, over Labor Day weekend, 1989, and then their bodies were found about six weeks later, about a mile off of I-64. So what you have here is a series of four double homicides. Two actually took place on the Colonial Parkway. Two took place off the Colonial Parkway. Why is this important? Because the the first and third cases, Kathy and Becky to start, and and Keith and Cassandra, that's one and three, um, are FBI cases. They're they take place, or they appear to take place in a national park, and the FBI and the National Park Service police are the responsible agencies in terms of investigating uh, the double homicides, and then. Case number two, that's David Nobling and um, uh, Robin Edwards, and then Daniel Lauer and Anna Maria Phelps, those two cases take place off the Colonial Parkway and therefore are Virginia State Police cases and are handled by, just to make things even more complicated, are handled by two separate Virginia State Police offices. Okay, Okay. so just to be clear in my own head, this is in Virginia— Mm-hmm. And you have the FBI working on your sister's case, and you have them working on the missing person case because that uh, it's it was on federal land. It Correct. Was on, okay, and then the others were in two separate counties or districts. So two, two separate counties. Two two separate counties. So now we're talking about two different sets of law enforcement, like local law enforcement. Well, and and these two counties, and we can drill down as far as we need to, are very small. And uh, the first is in a. a pl- the David Nobling and, and Robin Edwards case takes in a place called Isle of Wight County, which is very rural, especially 30-some years ago. And they aren't really equipped to um, investigate a murder at this level. And then in the fourth case, uh, Daniel Lauer and Anna Maria Phelps um, are in New Kent County, um, which at that time doesn't even have a police force. We're talking about really rural areas. And so they literally don't even have cops. So the Virginia State Police assume control of that case right from the beginning. What would be the situation that a county doesn't have a police force? 
Well, at funding. that at that time, it was so they were so lightly populated. These areas they're much more built up now. Oh, so years they later. just they just literally didn't have the need for it. No, nope, no nope. small towns and very lightly populated areas of the state of Virginia, and all of this is in that um, what they call the Tidewater area of Virginia. So this is where um, Jamestown, Yorktown, Williamsburg, and this Colonial Parkway that you know we talk about regarding the case is a 23-mile-long ribbon of federal parkland that connects all of these historic sites. And if you've ever been to Colonial Williamsburg and and, and maybe driven to Jamestown or Yorktown, um, you're oftentimes routed onto this uh, really beautiful, it's designed to look like an old-fashioned highway uh, from the 40s before... Uh, the federal highway system was put in, and it was put together by the National Park Service. But it's interesting. The, the name, the Colonial Parkway Murders, is actually created by local media. Um, the newspapers and, and, and radio and television stations in the Norfolk, Virginia market, um, in covering the case after it became clear that there, we might be dealing with a serial killer here, um, began referring to it as the Colonial Parkway murders. That's interesting. When did the media coin that term? Probably not until after the fourth case, because over over time here, and again, because you're dealing with different law enforcement agencies, I don't think anyone thought until we get up to uh, Keith Call and Cassandra Haley disappearing on the Colonial Parkway that anybody realized, you know, we might have a problem here because where Kathy and Becky were found along the Colonial Parkway, Keith Call's car was found about a mile and a half or so away at a very similar pull-off along the York River. And I think it's, you don't even, it's not until you get to like April 1988, which is a year and a half after the first murder, that they even begin to realize, we might have a problem here. And we might be dealing with a serial killer. Now, uh, can I ask um, the first question that I thought of uh, while looking at these is, uh, are we sure that the third couple is connected? Well, that because they're still missing. The missing couple. Yes. To be clear, we're actually not 100% certain that the Colonial Parkway murders are the work of a serial killer. Right. Let me offer you okay. a few in- bits of insight. There's at least according to what law enforcement has told us, the eight families in the Colonial Parkway murders, there's nothing in the forensics that links the Colonial Parkway murders. There are the circumstances, but in other words, based on what they've told us, and that there's some push-pull there, as you guys have talked about with other cases, they don't tell us everything, far from it. And there's some frustration on the part of the families. But what it, when asked a direct question, the FBI said to us, there's nothing in the forensics that links the Colonial Parkway murders. There are some threads. You've got four couples, lovers lanes, limited sign of struggle, no robbery, no sexual assault. There is sexual contact in one example. Um, And there's a sense right from the beginning of the case that they feel like a traffic stop. In other words, or, or they feel like the cars may have been stopped you know, whether the couple was parking or what have you, um, and then someone approaches the vehicle in a non-threatening way, it would appear. I'm not saying that's 100%, but I'm saying right from the very beginning of the case, within 48 hours of Kathy and Becky's death, FB, two FBI agents at my parents' house uh, up in Lowell, Massachusetts, said at our dining room table, we believe your sister and Ms. Dowski were approached by an authority figure. And uh, I said... I'm sorry, we're confused. What's an authority figure? And I thought this was interesting. The FBI agents kind of stammered a little bit. And the FBI agents that I've met over the years tend to be pretty polished. And I was really surprised. I was watching them carefully why they were uncomfortable. And then they sort of kicked it back in gear. And they said, well, by authority figure, we mean. And they listed a whole series of agencies, state, local, federal, and keep in mind, this area of, of Virginia is, has a tremendous amount of military presence. And my sister, Kathy, was a United States Naval Academy grad, and that's why she was in that area. So in addition to all of the usual folks that you'd have in a, uh, you know, in a particular city or town, um, they also have all of these military 
um, security agencies. And interestingly, the CIA has a major uh, training facility called Camp Perry right there on the Colonial Parkway, just a few miles away from where some of the murders took place. So they're, they, they must have listed a dozen different agencies, all of whom had um, a presence there. And many of uh, those agencies used the Colonial Parkway itself as a kind of a cut-through. So you're not directly saying that this could be someone directly involved with those agencies. You're saying someone maybe could have taken advantage of the location and impersonated somebody from one of those agencies. Sure, and that was okay. actually something when we sort of probed that with, with, the, with the agents. We've talked about it many times since with the FBI and Virginia State Police. They, one of the possible uh, scenarios is that a law enforcement officer or someone presenting as such. So they had a lot of problems with police impersonators on the Colonial Parkway, and it's sort of a unique road. It's it because we, we talked about it a little bit. It's got it's very limited access. It's designed to be this old-fashioned highway. So there's only like seven or eight exits, even, and it's it's got fencing on both sides in a number of examples, or the rivers on one side that goes by the James and York rivers. So it's very limited access, and you kind of, once you're in it, you're in it. And the FBI and Virginia State Police have told us they had a number of problems at that time, this is in the late 80s, with people stopping motorists along these roads and, you know, doing the license and registration thing. And as they said, white middle-class people, which these eight uh, victims were, will comply. And, but... We've heard dozens and dozens of stories from people who have told us that back in that late 80s time frame, they were pulled over by people and asked for license and registration. And to this day, those people can't even tell you who they were pulled over by. In many cases, it was people driving unmarked cars, and they just complied and did what they were told. And you don't mean specifically who, like their name. You just mean they don't know what the agency. agency. They, yeah, they can't tell you what agency. And sometimes the people were in uniform and sometimes they weren't. And this was a huge problem? This was a huge problem. How far wow. away from D.C. was this? This is a, is couple, this? Is a couple of hours south of D.C. Okay, I'm just geographically wanting yeah. to wrap my head yeah. around that. And how far off of like a major highway is this? Well, the, thir- the fourth case takes place along Interstate 64, which is a pretty major highway, and actually the Colonial Parkway Road kind of parallels I-64. But for the most part, they believe that the at least the first three cases, uh, two of them took place on the Colonial Parkway, and one took place at this uh, spot called the Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge, um, which is kind of across the, the river from uh, Newport News. But that's kind of, especially 30 years ago, that was kind of the boonies. So these places are very quiet, limited access roads, and speaking frankly, I do, which I tr- do try to do, um, very lightly patrolled, especially back then. So we hear over and over again and read newspaper accounts, and I've talked to the investigators about this, they definitely had a problem with police impersonators. So when I say this, and this is only one scenario that doesn't mean that this was a law enforcement person. This could be someone who approached these couples in a non-threatening way. But it does sound like it um, because of the, I guess, lack of a better word, the profile, because they're all similar uh, in cars. Um, that kind of makes sense. I can see why that was the common belief and it is the common belief. If I can add something, though, yeah. before we go too far down that road, though, you can also make a com- pretty compelling case that these are actually for unrelated murders and that there may be individuals responsible for each of these double homicides. And although the FBI in particular said to me a couple of years ago, Bill, what are the chances that four double homicides are going to happen? As they said, Lover's Lane murders are very uncommon. Double homicides are very rare. And then there are certain aspects of the movement of cars and potentially the staging of the scenes Mm -hmm. that feel very strongly parallel to the investigators. And again, I'm not an investigator. I'm just the brother of a murder victim. I just, I'm just reflecting what I've, what I've learned over the years about the case, but you could make a pretty compelling scenario 
that these four double homicides are actually not related. My personal theory is that, uh, and I'm going to date myself a little bit here, when we were kids in math class, they used to use these things, they were called overhead projectors. Um, older folks will know what I'm talking about. Younger people will have to bear with me for a second. On the YouTube uh, version. Yeah. We'll, we'll oh, yeah. I'll bet we could find yeah. one. <laughs> so we'd be doing these math problems, and we'd be sorting out like what was like and what was not like in the modern math section, and they'd, we'd have these clear uh, sheets you'd write on them, and then you'd put it down on a projector, and it would throw it up on the wall. I think, actually, the Colonial Parkway murders, there are relationships between these cases. I just don't know that it's a straight-up one, two, three, four kind of relationship. I think this group of cases and some other unsolved cases in the area, I think there are relationships, but I think it may be one of those things where the circles kind of overlap, you know, with the triangles in one area and the diamonds in another. I think there's a pattern here, but it might not be quite so straightforward. I could see that as well. Um, but I guess from the FBI's perspective, they're like, you know, double murder in, in that situation is, is that rare that even though these cases all took place within three years and relatively close proximity that they kind of naturally got grouped together. Do you know if any DNA from the killer or a killer or killers has been recovered? Well, the FBI... And the Virginia State Police have told the Colonial Parkway murders families. Now, these are independent conversations. Um, they've told us in three or four, three of four of these crime scenes, we have potential perpetrator DNA. In other words, you know, the unidentified DNA um, that has been collected at those scenes. Now. Again, you know, we have to remember this case starts in 1986. At that time, DNA hadn't even come out of the lab yet. So we're actually hoping that forensics will help us catch up with aspects of this case from a scientific perspective that just weren't available to us 30, you know, 29 to 32 years ago. So we're told we have DNA in three of the four crime scenes, uh, every crime scene except for the fourth one, Daniel Lauer and Anna Maria Phelps, their bodies were found in a pretty advanced state of decomposition under a blanket off I-64 on a logging road, and they'd been missing for six weeks, and it had been extremely wet. So they had a very difficult time. There wasn't much left without being too graphic. Now, assuming these cases are connected, is one of the working theories, uh, because these these bodies, these victims were placed in different jurisdictions. Is that part of the thinking into maybe this was law enforcement or or uh, a, a, someone acting that way? They have some working knowledge of uh, how to dispose? It's definitely one of, the, one of the theories. In other words, the idea that this could be a wannabe or someone that might have studied how law enforcement works. It is interesting that we end up in um, on these very lightly patrolled roads and in two scenarios in places where there's respectfully, essentially very little local law enforcement. And so uh, it's definitely, you know, could be part of the mix that this person or, or, or persons may have some working knowledge uh, of how law enforcement works, not dissimilar to the Golden State Killer uh, case where you have Joseph D'Angelo, former cop, understands how police work and moves around. And I, I think if these cases are related, and there is a fifth case that's often mentioned as a possible, uh, another double homicide um, that's potentially related, it, it, it does appear that if they are related, someone's definitely putting a, some thought into where these murders take place and where where cars are abandoned, et cetera. And to piggyback on that question, I think it's important to note how your sister and Rebecca were killed and what the difference and similarities are because that you have a couple that was was shot and your your sister and Rebecca were 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 bound and strangled. Correct. With their throats cut and then gasoline poured on them. D actually, diesel fuel. Diesel Here, fuel. Let's, okay. let's go through this because it's funny. We talked a little bit about some of the parallels. Here are some of the differences in the method of killing. It's okay. really distinctive. And 
you know, does this say that these are separate killers or just that someone's changing up their techniques? So in the first example, as you were saying, Kathy and Becky uh, are found in my sister's 1980 Honda Civic. They've been missing for about two and a half days. They went missing on a Thursday night, and the bodies are found by a passerby on Sunday. Kathy and Becky have been bound um, with uh, not some form of nylon rope. Their throats have been cut from beyond ear to ear. Sadly, Kathy was essentially decapitated. Um, and then their bodies are placed in my sister's very small car. This is the two-door Honda, and they were even smaller than they are now. Um, and diesel fuel is poured over the bodies and the car in a, what my word, a clumsy attempt to set the car on fire. Why is it clumsy? Because diesel fuel, unlike gasoline, won't go up like with a match. But there's an attempt, the FBI tells me, to set the car on fire unsuccessfully. And so that's always troubled me. Who has access to diesel fuel but doesn't understand the ignition properties. Right, so you, you're not talking about someone who's, say, a truck driver who is very familiar with diesel fuel. Right, and then keep in mind, you're, you're absolutely right, and then we're right next to the water. The The York River is where the the car is found. And there's down there, they, they refer to watermen, who are the folks that make their living on the water, crabbers, fishermen, and so on. There's a tremendous amount of, of water, plus uh, in addition to... Uh, the watermen, there's all kinds of folks just in, out enjoying themselves in, in their boats. So this is a, a very big area for that kind of thing. And there are a lot of diesel-powered uh, boats as well. And so other things that are powered by diesel, trucks, although there's no trucks allowed on the Colonial Parkway, it's cars only, um, uh, lawnmowers and tra- you know big tractors and stuff, farm equipment, and there's a lot of that kind of thing, logging equipment, and then... All these boats, some of which would be feet away. Kathy and, uh, Kathy and Becky's bodies are found in my sister's car inches, literally inches from the surface of the water. The car was pushed over the edge, the small, very light version of the Honda with a manual transmission, pushed over the edge of, of an embankment, and it rolls down towards the surface of the York River and then gets caught in underbrush. But it's, it's not visible from the surface of the Colonial Parkway. So without, I don't want to get into too much detail before we move on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, I would like to ask a couple of questions, though. Go ahead. I, I do appreciate the detail here. I think the diesel fuel says a lot. I think um, the manual tr- transmission and pushing the car says a lot. Uh, the diesel fuel, because I feel like if you had a boat or if you operated... A, a large uh, piece of machinery like a tractor, you would understand the the properties of diesel fuel and you would know this doesn't light up right away. So therefore, you wouldn't bring diesel fuel when you're planning to murder somebody. Right. And, and if you talk about the murder kit, which the investigators have talked about, this individual to, to the first murder brought rope, yes. knives, and diesel fuel, all three, and then took all those things away with him or or them. I'll, I'll say him just for... Sure. Brevity. But he brought those things with him, used those tools, if you will. I know that's a little, I hope that's not too graphic. And But then he took all those things away. And then, then interestingly, he left a piece of uh, rope on my the back of my sister's neck. He cut the ends of it, but left a piece. I'm visualizing here. I've never seen this. I've seen a picture of it. I don't know. It's probably an inch or two long. Uh, with cut ends at both ends, which might have happened during the throat cutting, but so he left a piece of nylon rope. Okay, so that would mean that he had access to diesel fuel rope, which is interesting. I wonder if there was some sort of uh, 
like shed or a place where people would dock their boats and they would keep the the cans there and he was familiar with that area and he knew I can show up and just grab this rope or grab the diesel fuel? Well, there are there's nothing immediately nearby. It's kind of a stretch of of pretty quiet, very beautiful um road within a couple of miles are sheds like that and for both lawn mowing equipment that the National Park Service would use and then there are you know boats and docks and and places where you could buy diesel fuel within a few miles. Um so it you know you raise a, some real interesting issues here. So it I don't know that every truck driver or everyone who uses diesel fuel understands that it doesn't light up right away. But one thing we know is that, or one thing we, I think we can probably glean is that this was the killer's first attempt at burning a car because they would have gotten, they would have moved on if they knew. From diesel fuel. Right. If they knew that that didn't light. Right. And it's the only case in the four where uh, he goes to such elaborate lengths to set the car on fire. Yeah. And it, it is very striking. It, in the early stages of the investigation, in addition to looking at, um, you know, the two women's former boyfriends and, and, you know, other people in their lives, which makes perfect sense to me, they did spend a lot of time looking at Waterman because of the rope, knives, diesel fuel, and the proximity to the water. Yeah. I have two more, like, detailed questions. You said that they were placed inside the car. Correct. So were they killed outside the car? They think so. And I remember getting into this in some detail with the investigators when we met with them uh, in 2010. Um, they they don't think there's enough uh, blood inside the car for the murder to have taken place inside the car. And, and this is also a very small car. Um, so uh, Kathy's body is placed in the what we call the way back you know the hatchback area which is she's not a small person she's like five seven 140 pounds very athletic um and then so her body is placed in the in the trunk basically in the hatchback and then becky's body is across the back seat with her feet extending towards the passenger door as a matter of fact i think um they had some difficulty closing the door because her feet were extending. The killer. Uh, the, the killer. Okay. Um, in placing the body in inside the Honda. Um, and then they think that he may have driven the Honda um, to the place, um, the, the overlook um, where, the, where the car was found. So then you have somebody who knows manual transmission. Right, who can drive a manual transmission. And then I think it would be possible for a a one person with the car in neutral to push the car from this flat, grassy area next to the Colonial Parkway to push it over the edge. But I think he was making, at that point, another attempt to disguise or hide the car by pushing it. I think he was hoping it would go down into the water. And that the river, the York River there is, is... pretty wide and pretty deep. United States Navy ships actually go up the uh, up the river and actually within about a mile of that site, which is called the Cheatham Annex Overlook, there is a place called Cheatham Annex where United States Navy ships are loaded with um, explosives, missiles, um, bombs, and even nuclear uh, devices. It's within sight of where the car was found. So there are well-guarded Navy bases um, within actually a few hundred yards of um, the, you know, where the car was found, although this would be at a very quiet area. So it isn't like the guard shack is right down the road or anything. So you want to move on to number two for a second? Yeah. So now we start to see some differences. This is David Nobling, um, who's 20, and Robin Edwards, who's 14. First of all, they're not really, we talk about couples, they're not really a couple. They met that day. Uh, They may have been engaged in sexual activity that evening, uh, and there's some evidence of that, but this crime scene is is quite different. Uh, They went missing, uh, and David's pickup truck was found at this Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge. It's 
Um, this Ford pickup truck, Ford Ranger, is his pride and joy, and there are things about it that are immediately striking to his family. One is that the the car, the truck rather, is parked nose into the parking lot, and David was one of those guys who's really into trucks and all that stuff. He always, no matter where he was, parked the truck nose out, not nose in. So right away his family felt that he wasn't driving the truck, at least at some point during the, this process. Um, they they go missing. Um, the truck is found with uh, the windshield wipers going and the radio in the accessory position. And it, as his brother has noted, um, there was no reason, if you were, wanted to listen to music, for it to be in the accessory position because they had hardwired the radio so that it didn't need that. So because they would you know take the truck to do fun things with. And so the killer didn't know that. Obviously. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And so. The bodies are found a couple of days later. They've been dumped in the water and have floated apparently down the James River, which is, again, very wide and deep at that point. We're heading out towards the Atlantic Ocean. Um, The bodies are found about a mile away. I think it's three days later, and they've both been shot. And um, David was shot in the shoulder and then finished off with a kill shot. And from the angle of the bullet, which was a small caliber uh, likely a revolver. Um, it appears that David was perhaps uh, running away, was shot in the shoulder, taken down, and then finished off with a kill shot. And then Robin Edwards was also shot in the head. And then the bodies are, are, are dumped in the water. So right right away you start to see you know some differences in terms of variance um, of the sites and how the bodies are handled. Were they able to tell which came first on David's uh, bullet wounds? Was it the shoulder and then the head? No, unfortunately, they, they were not. Now, it is important to note that someone had sexual contact with Robin, and they were able to, to extract a, a, a DNA sample, although keeping in mind their bodies had been in the water for three days. And actually, you know, kind of tragically, um, David's father was uh, in the search party and was... Um, one of the people that actually discovered his son's body. And what kind of vehicle was it? You said it was a truck. This, I, I think yeah, it's a Ford Ranger, which is kind of one of their smaller pickup trucks. So in the third example, this is the case. Now we're back on the Colonial Parkway. And this is a situation where Keith Call, who's 20, and Cassandra Haley, who's 18, are out on a first date. So they're not really a couple either. They are out on a first date. They're both college students at Christopher Newport University. He's recently broken up with his longtime high school girlfriend, or they're kind of taking a break. So he goes out on a date um, with Cassandra, who's a strikingly pretty young woman um, who's in his classes. And um, they've gone to different high schools. So they, it, I, my guess is they would have met at Christopher Newport. And they go to a movie, and then they go out to a college party afterward. A number of people that saw them there that evening said it was kind of interesting. They didn't seem particularly into one another. Um, Keith spends the night chatting with other people about how much he misses his longtime girlfriend. She ends up spending a good portion of the evening chatting with a group of guys that include a guy named Terry Kirby, who went on to have an NFL career, African-American guy, a local guy who had been... Uh, Sandy's on-and-off high school uh, boyfriend. And keep in mind, this is Virginia. This is the 1980s. It is a very politically kind of conservative place. So an interracial dating relationship back then was something you kind of kept on the down low. But she ends up chatting with Terry and a couple of friends for the course of the evening. And people notice that Keith and Cassandra don't necessarily seem all that into each other. Hmm. Um, now, she has a curfew and is supposed to get home by 1.30, which kind of makes me smile um, because it's, a, it's late, but that's what time she's supposed to be home by. So they, they head out from this party, which is at Christopher Newport University at a, an apartment building that's not there anymore, and they go missing. And have never been found. What is found along the Colonial Parkway is Keith's Toyota Celica. And the car is found about a mile and a half or so from a very similar pull-off where Kathy and Becky's car had been found a year and a half before. 
So they go missing in April, and there's an early theory that they went skinny dipping, which is just seems absurd on its face. It's April. Temperatures are in the 40s. It's kind of a misty night. The car is parked at one of these little pull-offs again. It's called the York River Overlook. Um, it's about probably 30 feet up from the surface of the water, down a steep, rocky path. I mean, even if you were drunk off your butt um, at 1.30 in the morning, I, I just don't see it as a likely place, particularly where if you go two or 300 yards further over along the Colonial Parkway, you can find a spot that where there's a sandy beach and you could hop down and stick your feet in the water and, you know, it would only be like a three-foot drop down to the beach. Um, on top of that, they're on a first date. Uh, Keith's hung up on, on his girlfriend, and they're kind of hoping to get back together. Sandy's considered very modest, and her sisters um, say there's just no way. Yeah, it doesn't sound likely. No. It and sounds, on yeah. top of everything else, Keith didn't like the Colonial Parkway because it kind of was you know, very dark, very spooky. There's no lights, no businesses. It's pitch black out there. And it just, it, the scenario just doesn't work. But the car is found there. And then, of course, it's been 30-something years now. We've never found Keith and Cassandra. So they are technically missing, but are considered to be um, part of of this series of murders. So no blood found at the scene? No blood found at the scene. There are some odd details that jump out. There are articles of clothing found in the car, but this gets very strange. Um, Keith's father, um, who's since deceased, is driving to work the following morning. He's on his way to the Bush Brewery, where he's a foreman, and that is Colonial Parkway's his usual route. He's driving along. He saw Keith's car. It's in this little half-moon pull-off. It's very close to the road, 25 or 30 feet maybe. It's a pretty distinctive Toyota Celica. It's sort of a rust color. He pulls in, and his recollection is that Mr. Call um, stops, gets out of his car, calls out to his son, thinking, is his son there somewhere, um, finds the door ajar, looks inside the Toyota Celica, doesn't notice anything out of the ordinary, and then failing to get any kind of response, he thinks, well, maybe Keith left the car there, went off with his buddies or what what have you, um, and gets back in his car and drives on to work. But later, when National Park Service rangers um, are examining the car, which they feel has been abandoned along the Colonial Parkway, According to the National Park Service Rangers, they find articles of clothing, including one of Sandy's shoes, low boots that she was wearing. It was the 80s. Um, and Keith's watch and and uh, glasses. And But Mr. Call's recollection is so that... there's nothing strange. None of those things are in the car. Didn't they find her purse as well? They did. Um, and But when they talked to Mr. Call, he swears up and down that those items were not in the car at the time he swung by. Now, Mr. Call is so troubled by this that he actually ends up undergoing hypnosis to see whether or not he's recalling things correctly. He's very disturbed by this. Not only has his son gone missing and this young woman, um, but, you know, Mr. Call is very upset because he feels that, did he miss something? Did he really not see these things. We think now that National Park Service rangers may have removed the items of clothing at some point earlier. And again, crime scenes were not handled then like they are now, um, and which you know may present a problem for us in, in helping to solve cases. They think that National Park Service rangers may have removed the articles of clothing and uh, in an effort to figure out whose car this was. And I know that they ended up calling, um, I think it's the Haley family, after finding her address in her checkbook, uh, Sandy's checkbook. So, um, But there's this disconnect between what Mr. Call says he saw 
and what the National Park Service Rangers and then ultimately the FBI get involved. And of course, what I find disturbing is that in the early stages, no one points out that this Toyota Celica is being found a mile and a half from a scene where two young women, my sister and Rebecca Dowski, were brutally murdered only a year and a half before. So, it, and then of course, you know, we end up with these odd, you know, skinny dipping theories and, and so on. And it just, it, in retrospect, when I think about it, I think somebody should have been pointing out, hold on for a second. We just had a, a brutal murder on the Colonial Parkway. In other words, no one's connecting the the, the, the second case, Nobling Edwards at Ragged Island, which is about a half an hour away. No one's connecting that case yet, but you would at least think that somebody would have been pointing out, you know, this is right down the road from a, a remarkably similar spot where Kathy and Becky were found. Did the ID of Richard call, was that found? Was that in the car? I'm saying this from memory. I think so. I think so. So could it be that the clothes and all of those belongings were found outside and they found his ID and maybe opened up the glove compartment in the car and noted and did the like compared the registration and said well I don't know all the particulars but I you know and it's interesting the clothes are found neatly folded in the back seat. That was my next question, it's neatly folded. So they they think and, and there was significant friction is my understanding from the investigators between the FBI uh, who you know are not happy with the state of what now is a potential crime scene and the National Park Service we interviewed some of the the uh, special agents in charge now retired and they said there was some pretty significant heat right from the very beginning because the, the FBI at this point, was starting to say, is anybody thought about the fact that, you know, there's another crime scene just down the road? And why isn't anybody thinking about the fact that these two parkway crime scenes do seem, you know, potential crime scenes? Sure. They do seem remarkably similar. Yeah. It does sound like Park Service um, incompetence uh, at first, you know, folding the clothes and pulling them out, trying to identify people. These aren't like trained law enforcement crime scene specialists. No, not at all. And uh, again, we're talking about 30 years ago. Yeah. The, the National Park Service rangers, they weren't cops. They may have patrolled the parkway and been responsible for law enforcement on some level, but they were not particularly well-paid paid or well-trained. Yeah. And I, I think mistakes were made mm-hmm. uh, in the handling of, of, the, of the Call Haley site. And that would, that would uh, maybe explain why his father thought initially that there was nothing wrong in the car because maybe he just looked past a little pile of folded clothes. Sure. And I've even thought, and again, I never met Mr. Call. He he and Mrs. Call both died very young directly as a result of the of the strain of of this uh, horrific case. Um, I never met him to ask him these kind of questions, but I know that I had wondered if perhaps, you know, he was on his way to work. He didn't think there was anything seriously wrong. He, I wondered if his overview of the car might have been a little more perfunctory than we might have thought but, that's probably an element too but even so when he went back and he actually took the step of allowing himself to be hypnotized and they went through the you know his in-depth recollection it was consistent with what he remembered you know he swore to his family that he got out of the car and took a careful look around again his focus was on getting to work and yeah. he was the boss and so and you know, if he's anything like most of us, he probably hasn't built in a whole lot of extra time to his daily commute. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think to be fair to everybody, it, it does appear that the clothes were removed and then replaced. Mm. What time was he due to arrive at his job? I think he worked the 7 to 3 shift, so this would have been fairly early in, in the morning. So whatever happened, happened after one thirty and before, before 7. Yeah, before 7. Yeah, it just seems a lot more likely to me that it's people trying to figure out who it is than the serial killer who uh, who folded up the clothes. You know, the one who tried to light uh, his other victims on fire and, and just pushed a truck into the yeah, water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't make sense. But it is a crazy mystery, right? It is creepy, and yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, sad that they haven't been found. It kind of makes me think that 
that the, he got better at submerging bodies? Yeah, I've I've actually offered a, a theory regarding Keith and Cassandra, which is that um, if this is the same killer, he's modifying his techniques here. You know, in the first example, Kathy and Becky are bound, their throats are cut, and there's this attempt to set the car on fire. In the second example, uh, the two victims are shot to death. Uh, and then once again, we think we have like a post-mortem moving of the car. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the third example, now, and this is just my theory, it feels like if this is the same perpetrator, at this point now he's perfected or modified his techniques. He literally makes a couple disappear. Yeah. Now, as the FBI has explained to me, it's hard to make a car disappear. But you can make people go away. And so these people go away, and you know, they're right next to the river, so their bodies could have ended up in the river. And then there, there's all these dense woods. It's, sometimes it's not a very wide park. As a matter of fact, they jokingly say that Colonial Parkway is the, world, is the nation's largest and narrowest uh, park because sometimes it's only a few hundred yards wide along these, the roadway next to the rivers. But... The bodies could be buried somewhere, and there's all these swamps and woods, and it's quite beautiful, but it's very disturbing that they were never able to find any um, remains for Keith and Cassandra, which is extremely disturbing to the families. I assume that there were some significant searches. There were. They, they, searched, the, they searched the area. I've seen photographs, and I've talked to people that were there. They, they did aerial searches, they did ground searches, they had uh, uh, cadets out walking, you know, six, ten feet apart through, you know, a number of miles of, of roadway. They searched the, the river, there are photographs of the divers uh, checking the area, they dragged the river. Now, the currents are very strong there, this is the York River, um, and, you know, the flow is out towards the Atlantic Ocean, and as I mentioned, this is a deep enough river that U.S. Navy ships are right nearby. So this isn't like, you know, shallow uh, water that's easily searched. But I I do have to give law enforcement credit. They did put significant resources into searching the area to no avail. Do you know if Cassandra's belongings that maybe she left at home were disturbed? Did she have a car that maybe... Was was gone through? Was there anything? No, of not, her, of not her to per- my knowledge. No, and you know there are striking things like one shoe is found, a boot is found inside the car, the other one's missing. Is there some belief that they were abducted at a, at a different area and the car was well, driven by the killer again? Well, it, it 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 sounds likely because the the she lives in Grafton, Virginia, at her parents' home, and. They are last seen at the party, which is in Newport News. The odd thing is that the Colonial Parkway, where Keith's car is found, is well out of the way, say 15 or 20 minutes out of the way. So, again, they're not a couple, but let's say even if they did stop to be romantic, this seems like an odd choice for all the reasons that we talked about, and it's way out of the way. In other words, there are lots of quiet spots that they could have stopped if they wanted to get to know each other better. And as I said, it didn't seem like they were clicking at the party, according to their friends. And I've talked to people that were there that night. But let's just say they did stop to be romantic. The Colonial Parkway's 20 minutes out of the way. And and remember, the clock is running here. He's supposed to be getting her home by Mm -hmm. this. It's either 1.30 or 2 o'clock. It does make me smile because, you know, it's a late curfew, but it is a curfew nonetheless. Right, right. And this was on the way to her place. No, it's 20 minutes out of the way. Out That's of the way. what's key. Okay, sorry. Yeah, when you said that, I I just figured it was 20 minutes away. No, it's, it's 20 actually... 20 minutes in the wrong direction? 20 minutes in the wrong direction, um, and that, that always struck me as odd. So it seems likely, in my opinion, that the killer probably drove that vehicle too. Right. Or, or forced them to drive it. Yeah. And um, uh, I hope this doesn't sound too harsh, but in my opinion, the, the Colonial Parkway is a dump site. The, in other words, that's where Keith's car is, yeah. is left. I don't think whatever happened necessarily happened on the Colonial Parkway, but the killer or killers chose to leave the car on the Colonial Parkway. Yeah. Okay. So we got the next set of victims? Right. The final set of victims are, are Daniel Lauer and Anna Maria Phelps. Daniel's 21, 
and Anna Maria is 18. Now, here we go again. The, these two are not a couple either. Uh, Anna Maria is, or Anna, as, as her family calls her, is dating Daniel's brother, Clint. Um, and actually, they're supposedly um, becoming engaged. So they're supposed to be a fairly serious couple. The way this works is that Anna and Clint were uh, living down in Virginia Beach, and we're struggling, struggling a bit financially. And Daniel Lauer, the, the brother, was going to be moving in with them. And so they're trying to make a go of it down in Virginia Beach. But, you know, we're talking about, um, uh, you know, working in burger joints and, and, you know, scratching together the rent. And uh, over the Labor Day weekend, Clint has to work at his job. But Anna goes home. Uh, to see family and get some clothes and that sort of thing. And Daniel, who's moving in with them, agrees to provide a ride to Anna back down from Amelia County, Virginia, to to Virginia Beach. And so they're traveling companions, so they are not necessarily a couple. Now, it isn't to say that they might not have stopped to, you know, fool around or, or maybe smoke a joint or, you know, whatever, but... The FBI believes, and the Virginia State Police concur, they believe that they went missing um, along I-64. Now, this is an interstate, two lanes in each direction at that point, so it's a bigger road. Um, They think at a rest stop, which would have been eastbound, that is on the way from uh, their home to Virginia Beach. This becomes important, I'll explain in a second. They think that uh, they had some sort of encounter with someone at this rest stop. Now, they go missing. The car, uh, Daniel's car, which is a, uh, a Chevy Nova kind of a beater, which has a bunch of clothes and other items in the back, which is you know the items they were bringing down to the beach, is found not where they think they would have stopped, that is the eastbound direction of travel, but in a rest stop that's directly across I-64. There's kind of a mirror image rest stop that's westbound. In other words, heading back towards uh, their home in the opposite direction of travel. So they go missing. The car is found uh, a day or so later in in the opposite rest stop. And the bodies are not found for six weeks. Um, The bodies are found at the first exit in the original direction of travel, which is eastbound, about a mile as the crow flies from the original rest stop where they think they may have stopped, um, the bodies are found side by side under a blanket by hunters uh, in the woods. Um, There's an area that is um, a shared uh, kind of hunting, private hunting ground, um, I think these guys are turkey hunters, if I remember correctly. And they find um, the bodies in an advanced state of decomposition under a blanket, which had been taken from Daniel's Chevy Nova. And at this point, the bodies are in very rough shape. It's been six weeks of a very wet fall that year. And um, the bodies are in such a, a state of, of decomposition and animals have gotten at them and so on. Uh, they actually have a difficult time determining cause of death. And they actually send the bones and what little remains to the Smithsonian Institution. And they actually provide some additional forensic examination after the medical examiner has reviewed uh, the remains. And they find, I I think it's um, on on Anna's hands, some nick marks from uh, a knife. So it might have been like a defensive wound with her putting up her hands. And they are unable to determine how Daniel died at all. But... Let's assume for a second that they were stabbed. So now um, we have four cases, and the method of killing varies quite a bit. We've got, you know, first couple bound, throats cut, diesel fuel, second couple shot, dumped in water, third couple go completely missing, so we don't know how they died, and then fourth couple, now we're back to the knife. Now, some investigators have said to me that they think that if this is a scenario where these, notice I'm I'm still saying couples, even though the only serious couple actually in this group is actually Kathy and Becky, the first uh, um, couple killed. But 
if someone's approaching them, they may be using a gun in the early stages of the uh, uh, I agree, assault. Yeah. <clears throat> and then walking them through the woods. Right. And then deciding then to use the knife. Sure. And one of the investigators in walking me through, and I've actually been to these sites numerous times and actually been there with investigators. And one of the uh, top FBI agents who's worked this case, who I think is just amazing, she walked me through a scenario where she thinks that they may be using the gun for control, to establish control, because one of the things you have to figure out is how do one or even two people manage over time to assume control over eight healthy young people um, with very limited sign of struggle? And one of the ways you could do that is with the use of a firearm. So her theory, for example, was in the second murder with David Nobling and Robin Edwards that perhaps David is a pretty streetwise kid. He figures out that something's not right here, makes a break for it or struggles somehow. He ends up being shot and then and then shot again, and then Robin is shot. Um, I, we don't know sequence of events, but just go with it for a second. But that maybe his preference, the killer's preference is to use a knife, but he uses the gun for control. And in the second example, which is, again, still early in the murder series, assuming they're related, is that the situation kind of went south and he was forced to use the gun. And then, interestingly, we don't know in the third and fourth example, but it, it, there are differences, but there are, there are strong parallels. Is one of the parallels that the clothing from Anna Marie was found in Daniel's car? No, they think the articles of clothing that are in the back are, are, are packed to be brought down. You can see them in some of the f- crime scene photos. Are, are, they're, in, they're in trash bags, you know, and that kind of thing. They're, they look like they're moving. Um, but in, in most of these examples, there are articles of clothing found. And in the uh, case number two, Nobling Edwards, there are articles of clothing found in the truck as well. And then the, the bodies are found partially clothed. Uh, when they're found in the water. So there are these patterns, though, with the with the articles of clothing and then the, the movement of the cars post-mortem. And then some of the investigators have told me they think there's an element of staging. So, for example, yeah. in number four, Lauer Phelps, Daniel's Chevy is found on the opposite side of the road, as we talked about. But there's also something really prominent. There's a big feathered roach clip that's placed really prominently in, in the window of the car in a, you know, you can't miss it kind of position. And the investigators took it as a taunt, hmm. like, you know, this was deliberately placed in a way that so that they would see it. And there's a sense that the cars are all moved postmortem and that they're, they may even be staged to create certain impressions um, and the you know these articles of clothing are 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 moved around, and so there's a sense that uh, murders encounters begin, murders take place, and then the cars are moved. They use the word staged, and no sexual assault. No, the only the only example where we have any sexual contact that that the evidence shows is in case number two. Um, someone had sex with Robin Edwards the night she was killed, and it's not David Noble. 